Do you recall hearing about how Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2.11 about being taken advantage of by Satan, saying that we are not ignorant of his schemes? Today, we'll unpack a treasure of insight of how our enemy has used his number one tool to devastate human lives down through history and how he's doing it now. This is Dennis Peterson, and thanks for joining me today on Reclaiming Your Legacy. Historian William Federer is a friend I've appreciated for many years. He's written many books and has a very busy ministry unwrapping the often hidden details of history and how God has sovereignly guided the affairs of humanity since the beginning of creation. Nothing escapes his notice. The words of Paul at Mars Hill in Athens in Acts 17 remind us that God himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and then he dares to declare that the Creator made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, and get this, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Hmm. As a young museum curator in the 70s with a master's in history, I was stunned by the discovery of this verse. Imagine, God is literally the providential orchestra conductor of the migrations and timings of the human race, even to the boundaries of their habitation. I've been privileged to have Bill Federer as my guest for several discussions on Reclaiming Your Legacy, His insights are always like an exhilarating adventure into the past. I've been wanting to have him back to give us all some needed background on how our society has arrived at the crisis that we're now all facing. And though he can't be with us today in person, I'm excited that we can share with you some of the presentations he recently gave to the congregation of Chino Hills Calvary Chapel with Pastor Jack Hibbs. Bill was there for three evenings, keeping everyone entranced to his illustrated talks that you'll want to watch at the link that's provided along with the recording for today's program at reclaimyourlegacy.com. Don't miss that. Bill's topics include the progression of religious intolerance, how slavery turns to racial tension, and the dark truth of socialism and how it fails to deliver on its promises. While it lasts, You'll want to see the entire first talk at the link that's provided on the notes for today's program at reclaimyourlegacy.com. Part one is titled, Understanding the Culture. As we hear just a few minutes of the first part of Bill Federer's talk, you'll hear him mention his new book that you can get at his website, www.americanminute.com. It's titled, Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present, How the Deep State capitalizes on crisis to consolidate control. Now, get ready for a fast-paced, fact-filled, and very eye-opening journey as Bill Federer takes us back in time to discover some of the roots that most of us have practically zero knowledge that they ever even happened. Well, I wrote a book on socialism, and I spoke about it before, but there's a subtitle to it. So it's Socialism, the Real History from Plato to the Present, and the subtitle is How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. And so I'm just going to jump right in. So 380 B.C., Plato, he's sort of the guy who originated socialism. 
He writes in passing of Atlantis, this highly structured civilization on an island that sinks in the sea. And whether it existed or not, there is an island in the Mediterranean, Santorini, uh, that's what's left of a volcano. I actually went there in college, and it's a nice, pretty tourist place, but it would have sent a tsunami wiping out lots of civilizations. But Plato thought that Atlantis was the perfect structured society, and he considered democracy an unstructured society. Demos means people, crossing means rule, and the chief characteristic of a democracy is tolerance. Everybody tolerates each other. It's wonderful. And then they tolerate people that are a little bit off. Then they tolerate people that are a lot off, till finally they're tolerating lawlessness and it turns into chaos, and then the people say, can't someone come along and fix this mess? And that's when some governor comes along and he says, I can fix it, I just need some emergency powers. <laughs> so Plato says, last of all comes the tyrant. When he first appears above ground, he's a protector, he's full of smiles. I I'm gonna take away your freedoms, but I'm doing this to protect you. And uh, then, he ends up getting some more power. If any are suspected of resistance to his authority, he will have a good pretext for destroying them. And then he says, the protector, now he's standing up in the chariot of state with the reins in his hands, a tyrant absolute. And he has a mob entirely at his disposal, and he's not restrained from shedding of blood so he can destroy his political opponents. And um, anyway, uh, Plato said democracy is doomed to fail because it's based on people having virtue. And if... You give people a choice of giving up their life or giving up their virtue. They'll always give up their virtue to save their life. And I said, um, now ancient Israel's attempt to rule themselves without a king lasted a little longer because they had a big magnet in the sky called God, that they were virtuous because they were accountable to God. Athens didn't have that. By Plato's time, Athens had a bunch of fickle deities that nobody believed in anyway. Uh, Plato said, if, um, if someone was born that truly had virtue, the world would crucify him. So he writes this, 380 BC. If a truly just man lived, let him die as he lived. I might add that the just man will be scourged, racked, bound, and will at last be crucified. So Plato said that this democracy is doomed to crash, and the best you can hope for is a nice tyrant. <laughs> he called him a philosopher king. He's the head of gold. And his arms and chest uh, are the administrators, and um, together they make up the ruling class. And everyone else is the abdomen of iron and bronze. They're the ruled class. So socialism is a structured society of a ruling class and a ruled class. The ruling class, they're above the law. They're politically corrected, connected. And they're supported by the commoners. The ruling class can do special things, like getting their hair styled when nobody else can. <laughs> yeah. The ruled class, yes, they are all provided for, but no one owns any property. There's no families. The government decides who gets to have children, and the government takes the children away from the parents and brings them into the schools where they're socialized, which is a term to get them used to serving the ruling class. Plato says that um, when the true philosopher kings are born in a state, they will set in order their own city. They will take possession of the children who will be unaffected by the habits of their parents. These they will train in their own habits and laws. And these children will be taught Lies, noble lies. Plato said, we want one single grand lie which will be believed by everybody. So we got the, the people ruling themselves, but without virtue, it turns into chaos. Out of that chaos, you get a dictator. So we're, we begin to see that uh, there's a, tr a couple ways to take power away from the people. And uh, so democracies uh, and republics are forms of government that are called popular. 
not popular because everybody, you know, votes for them. No, it, they mean popular means populous. So the people, the population rules themselves. So democracy is everybody has to be at every meeting every day to talk about every issue, very time consuming. And since you physically have to be there, they only could be as large as a city. So the Greeks had city states. Uh, Rome was a republic. A republic is where you're in charge, but you're ruling through representatives. So you can take care of your family and farm. So republics could get bigger, but you're still in charge. So if uh, democracies and republics have taken the power from the king, given it to the people, what if there's a king who wants to take it away from the people and reconcentrate it? Uh, so there's two ways to do this. One is fear and the other is free stuff. <laughs> so fear, people will trade freedom for security. If you get people into fear, they will give up their freedoms for the promise of security. The second is free stuff. Everybody likes free stuff, but then you get dependent on the free stuff, and then they begin to threaten to hold back, and you're hooked, you'll give up your independence. The Bible does say the fear of the wicked, it shall come upon them. And then another verse, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So you want that free stuff. Sort of like a drug dealer takes over a neighborhood two ways. The first way is he uh, comes in with guns and he gets everybody fearful. And they panic and agree to pay the mob protection money. But the other way is the drug dealer can give away free drugs. Really free? Yeah. Uh, but then once you're hooked... He says, you want some more? Uh, you got to sell yourself into prostitution to get some money. You got to rob from your neighbor, right? And so they, they get you to do stuff that you'd never do before because you're hooked. It's sort of like a hunter can catch animals two ways, right? Can go out with guns, all right? Or with bait, right? You lure them in. It's sort of interesting. I was reading how they catch wild pigs. And so they uh, begin to build a little fence in the woods and they sprinkle corn on the ground. And the pigs come up and eat the corn, and they don't mind that there's a post there. And the next day, there's two posts. The next day, there's three posts. The next day, there's four. But they just keep eating the corn. And to finally, there's a whole circle full of posts, and there's one little entryway to get in. And they just squeeze through the entryway, and they're eating the corn, and then you just close it. Right? And then the pigs are trapped. And so you get people dependent on free stuff, and then finally, they let their guard down, and they get taken over. So, so we got free stuff, but we also have um, crises, fear. And so since it's natural that people give up freedom in exchange for security, there are some ambitious politicians that say, let's intentionally get people into fear. And so um, just a couple scriptures. Psalm 133 says, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Everybody say unity. unity. But then in Proverbs 6, it says six things the Lord hates. And the last is he that soweth discord. Everybody say discord. So we got unity, we got discord. And imagine being in heaven and somebody sows discord in heaven. His name's Lucifer. And he got a third of the angels to rebel against God. And so now the devil's down on earth, right? And so he sows discord. That's sort of his modus operandi. And one instance is Israel. Now, for 400 years, they didn't have a king. And then their first king was Saul. But about a century before Saul, they almost lost it with Abimelech. So who's he? Gideon defeats 100,000 Midianites. So Israel's at peace. There are no threats to Israel. And he has an illegitimate son named Abimelech who invents identity race politics. He goes to the town of Shechem. 
And he says, is it better for you that all the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And then it says, well, we got to vote for him because he is our brother. So forget whether he's good at ruling or not. He's one of us. So it's identity politics. And then they go to the, Abimelech goes to the temple of Baal Barith and he takes 70 pieces of silver and he hires rioters, Antifa type people. And it says, and they gave him three score and 10 pieces of silver out of the house of Balbareth, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and worthless persons which followed him. And he went unto his father's house at Ophrah and he slew his brethren. I mean, he's just rioting, rioting with all these people. And then the men of Shechem made Abimelech king. So here it's peaceful. The 100,000 Midianites are destroyed. Israel has no threats. And he decides to sow discord. And he goes in there, takes money, hires rioters, does identity politics, and then he does violence and kills all the, his half-brothers. And Now, the Hebrew Republic would have ended here rather than King Saul had not somebody threw a millstone over a wall and it killed Abimelech. So, there you go. Well, let's skip forward in history and Machiavelli lived 500 years ago in Italy. Italy was not Italy 500 years ago. It was a bunch of city-states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena, and they always fought. And Machiavelli thought if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting. So he writes a book called The Prince, where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end that any means necessary to get there is justified. Lie, cheat, steal. So if a prince wants to conquer a city and the city does not want to be conquered, they would hate him. But if the prince takes money like Abimelech, and hires vain and worthless persons to riot and loot and smash windows and set buildings on fire, the people in the city will panic and they'll want somebody to come along and fix it. The prince will come in, get rid of the very criminals he bribed to create the mess. Nobody will know the better for it and everyone will praise the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house and set it on fire. Then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher and they'll pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. You know that quote a little bit more recent as you don't want a crisis to go to waste. It is an opportunity to do important things that you would otherwise avoid. And Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, I'm actually excited about this opportunity. We are not yet through this crisis, but the chief of staff for President Obama is an old friend of mine and my husband's, and he, he said, you know, never waste a good crisis. And then just last week, I saw Fox primetime Ben Dominic said, the authoritarian left is using the permanent pandemic to achieve as many ends as they can imagine. The authoritarian left, um, let's see, this is Rahm Emanuel's famous dictum, never let a crisis go to waste. Normal times don't produce the outcomes that the authoritarian left once because people are not scared enough to give them the limitless power they crave. Crises are necessary, and so if, they aren't, if there aren't any on offer, they manufacture them. So we see a crisis, our response is how can we help people through it? They see a crisis, their response is how can we usurp power through it? Henry Louis Mencken wrote in 1956, the urge to save humanity is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it. Power is what all messiahs really seek. seek. They are not, not the chance to serve. Now, 33rd California governor, Ronald Reagan, warned, one of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism is medicine, is, is healthcare. 
It is easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Right? Everybody wants people to be healthy. And so if you, and says, if you don't stop this, behind it will come other federal programs that will invade every area of freedom until one day we will awake and find that we have socialism. Uh, he wrote this at a time when there was a socialist running for governor of California named uh, Norman Thomas. And um, I saw this cartoon. A friend of mine, David Lane, sent it out. Uh, dangerous new variant. It appears to be mutating into a totalitarian dictatorship. <laughs> And Reagan said, we want no further encroachment on these individual liberties and freedoms. Now, we talked about, uh, amen, amen. We talked about Abimelech. We talked about Machiavelli. But then let's look at a couple other applications. Britain. They have the largest empire in world history. And they took over India. How? In 1714, they landed in Bengal and started a trading post that turned into a trading fort that turned into them getting involved in local politics and giving guns to one kingdom and guns to another kingdom, stirring up ancient animosities against them until they broke out in bloodshed. And then the British came in to restore order and they took control of them. And they did this again and again and again till they took over all of India, a quarter of the world's population. And they tried doing that during the American Revolution, right? They went to the Mohawk Indians. General Johnny Burgoyne comes down from Canada and incites them to scalp the Americans, right, in exchange for money. And the British did it again during the War of 1812. So the British had Pensacola, Florida, and they gave money to these, and guns to these Red Stick Creek Indians to attack and butcher. You know the French pronunciation of Red Stick? Baton Rouge. Right, so that's from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So this was the Red Stick Creek Indians. And um, here's the historical marker. Here, Creek Indian War, 1813-14, took place the most brutal massacre in American history. Indians took the fort with heavy loss, then killed all but some 36 of the some 550 in the fort. Creeks had been armed by British at Pensacola in this phase of the War of 1812. So the British really didn't care about the Indians' issues. They were using the Indians to create this crisis so they could come in and take over the whole thing. Washington warned in his farewell address, disorders and miseries gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual who turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. Let there be no change through usurpation. Usurpation is you're doing things you're really not authorized to do, but people let you get away with it because you've convinced them that it's for their own good. But once they, you, they get away with it, it becomes the new precedent. Sort of like playing sandlot football. You're out of bounds. No, 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 the boundary's over here. And you fellas say, okay, okay, the boundary's over there. Then the next time, you're out of bounds. No, no, the boundary's over here. Right? They keep moving it. Uh, Washington said, usurpation, though in one instance may be the instrument of good, it is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. So it's like, I, I, I want to do something good. I just need a little extra power temporarily. Right? <laughs> um, the precedent of usurpation must always greatly overbalance in permanent evil any partial or transient benefit which the use of it at any time could yield. Right? So it's a short-term benefit, but a long-term evil. So we talked about... Um, the uh, story of uh, Lucifer sowing division in heaven and Abimelech sowing division uh, in Israel and Machiavelli sowing division and uh, the British sowing division to build their world empire. But now we're going to talk about Hegel. He uh, taught at the University of Berlin 
And Napoleon had just conquered Europe. Six million people died. And the king of Prussia, Germany wasn't Germany. It was a bunch of kingdoms, Saxony, Bavaria, Prussia, and they had armies and fought. And um, Hegel thought if one king could rule all the German kingdoms, then there would be peace, right? Sort of like Machiavelli. So Hegel, uh, he came up with his theory of dialectics that influenced Darwin and Karl Marx. Marx was a member of the Young Hegelians, a radical student group at the University of, of Berlin. So Hegel's, his dialectics is a triangle. One corner is a thesis, the opposite corner is an antithesis or antithesis, and the top corner is a synthesis. It sounds complicated, but it's not. In other words, you start off with the status quo, you create a problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer that's half as bad. <laughs> then that becomes the new starting point. You create another problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer that's half as bad. And that becomes the new starting point. Then you create another problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer that's half as bad. And each time they settle, the people give up a little more of their freedom, and it's reconcentrated into the hands of the state. Right? You have to get them into fear. And when people are in fear, they will trade freedom for security. So let's, let's create a crisis. Now, how do you create this antithesis, this uh, Karl Marx that you send in agitators, agent provocateurs, community organizers, labor organizers? Their job is to find people with grievances, stir them up to riot. And then when the whole country gets in fear and panic, then you come along promising to restore order and you usurp power. So... Um, he called it critical theory, critical economic theory, critical racial theory. And so you would study a country and see the groups. And then you would call one victims and the other oppressors. One the haves, the other have nots. And then you would orchestrate the protests and riots and so forth. And then when it was destabilized and fearful enough, everybody panics. And that's when they usurp power promising to fix it. And so originally he was organizing the proletariat against the bourgeois, which is the working class against the business owners. Or they would organize the poor against the rich, or the blacks against the whites, or the Catholics against the Protestants, or the Muslims against the Christians, even the Hutus against the Tutsis and the Congo and Rwanda. Sort of interesting. In Rwanda, they saw themselves as one, but when the British came in and were colonizing, they would like measure the heads and the heights of different, and they say, you're a Hutu and you're a Tutsi. They, they literally created racial distinctions where there was none there before. And then they... Well, are you getting a good taste for how fascinating Bill Federer makes history and helps us to understand a little bit more about not only where we've come from, but why we are in the pickle that we're in today? Well, you'll want to hear more of what this excellent teacher has to share with us on next week's program as we continue on Reclaiming Your Legacy. And you can get the whole presentation on the link that's at the website, www.reclaimyourlegacy.com. Don't miss that. I want to make sure that you have access to it. And also to Bill Federer's website at AmericanMinute.com. And you'll be able to have access to his excellent books and other things that he provides. I really hope you take advantage of it. And I hope that we're going to be able to share a lot more of what Bill has to share in his excellent teaching and programs to come. It's been great to be with you again on Reclaiming Your Legacy. This is Dennis Peterson. I look forward to being with you again next time.